Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Kristen Harnish, the author of The California Wife. The story in The California Wife begins in Harnish's earlier novel, The Vintner's Daughter. However, it's not necessary to have read the first book to enjoy the second. The California Wife opens in Vouvray, France, in 1897. The phylloxer blight has wreaked havoc on the famed French vineyards, and only the importation of blight-resistant rootstock from California offers any hope to the struggling wine industry. Among the estates affected by the crisis is Saint-Martin, ancestral home of Sarah, the heroine of both books. But at the beginning of the story, Sarah has other things on her mind. Sarah Thibault had never been this sure or scared of anything in her life. Marriage to Philippe Lemieux would be like jumping into the rushing current of a river, thrilling to the senses, adventurous and undoubtedly tumultuous. When she slid her arms around the man she'd just agreed to marry, his brilliant blue eyes warmed with affection, and his lips formed the crooked smile that never failed to soften Sarah's bones. She pressed her cheek to the lapel of his damp wool coat, enjoying the clean smell of the snow that blanketed them on this crisp grey November morning. Sarah was happy for the first time since she'd fled Saint-Martin last year. Sarah recalled the events that had brought them from Eagle's Run, Philippe's California vineyard, back to her family's vineyard, here in the heart of the Loire. The tragedy that had forced Sarah and her sister Lydia to flee France in the first place had taken Sarah to California. There, in spite of the tangled history between their two families, Sarah and Philippe had formed an unbreakable bond. She shuddered, remembering how close they'd come to being separated forever, all because of one man. And now, please join me in welcoming Kristen Harnish. Hi, Kristen. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, as I always do, let me start out by asking about you. Uh, How did you become a novelist? Well, it's funny. I was actually an economics major uh, in college, and then I went on to have a 10-year banking career in New York, San Francisco, and Boston. And then around the year 2000, I became pregnant with my first child, and my um, husband and I decided we were going to move down to the Connecticut area, and so I quit my job. And we decided to do one last hurrah trip to Europe uh, before I had the baby, and we ended up going to France. And I was actually standing in a vineyard in Vouvray, in the Loire Valley of France when I had one of those goosebump moments where the area was so beautiful. It was a vineyard of Chenin Blanc grapes and these pristine um, diagonal vine rows. And, you know, there was a little watchman shed and there was this beautiful ledge of tufa rock that ran on the western border border of the uh, vineyard. And I just was struck by the beauty And I thought to myself, this was the setting for the novel that I always secretly wanted to write and really had no idea how to go about that. (laughs) So what I ended up doing is coming back. And in my time before I had the baby, you know, I took a lot of writing classes and I actually spent 14 years between 2000 and well, 13 years, 2000 and 2013 
developing the story, developing my writing style, and really working on that novel. So it was 13 years in the making, the, the Vintner's Daughter, which is the first one. Yeah, it really does take a long time. Yeah, that's great. Um, so tell us a little bit about that story. I mean, obviously, you don't want to give away spoilers, but it is the background to the, the story that we're actually talking about. Yeah, so we're talking about The California Wife, which is the standalone sequel to The Vintner's Daughter. So, uh, But to give you a little background on The Vintner's Daughter, it's the story of Sarah Thibault, who is a Vintner's daughter living in the Loire Valley of France. She's 17 years old when the story starts. And through a series of very tragic events, her family loses their... Um, their grape farm and their winemaking operation. And she and her sister are forced to flee their homeland uh, for America. And they end up on a journey um, that takes Sarah from the streets and slums of New York's uh, Lower East Side all the way out to the sprawling vineyards um, of Napa eventually. And in Napa, she comes face to face with the one man who either could restore her family's vineyard to her or send her straight to the guillotine. So it's a very exciting story. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so how did you go about getting that novel published? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I queried about 23 agents. And finally, after 23 rejections, I met April Eberhardt. And she was introduced to me by a fellow author who said, I have an agent friend who lives in Sonoma, and I think she would love your book. And sure enough, she did. And it was like winning the lottery and my birthday on the same day. It was so exciting. And so April Eberhardt then started pitching my book in the United States and in Canada. And the first deal we got actually was a two-book deal with HarperCollins Canada. And then soon after, we decided to do hybrid publication in the United States with She Writes Press out of Berkeley. Uh, and that's been a great experience as well. Great. And April is actually the one who introduced you to me as well. Yes. Yes. She is the connection. She's a great lady. Great lady. Yes, she definitely is. So um, did you always intend to write more than one book about these characters, Sarah and Philippe? This is a funny story. So this comes back to April as well. So April was talking to HarperCollins Canada, and they were very interested in making an offer for the first book. And they asked her, well, is this a series? And she said to me, Kristen, is this a series? And I said, yes, it is, April. It is a series. <laughs> I had had no really thoughts about it being a series. But in that moment, it felt right to say yes, because A, I wanted the deal. And B, um, I actually wasn't done with these characters yet. And I felt like there was another novel in me. And I was excited about that. So that's how that <laughs> it was kind of on the fly. So talk to us about Sarah. Tell us what kind of woman she is, um, what she represents for you as a character. Um, she's the heroine, so she's obviously the most important character in the story. But tell us about her. Uh, Sarah, to me, is everything I wish I had been at age 17, 18, 19. Um, and in the California wife, she ends up being, I think, 20 to 22 years old. So she's still very young, but she has suffered a lot in her young life. And she has been through a lot of tragedy that has developed her as a person and really made her look inward in terms of what's important to her. She has always wanted to follow in her father's footsteps as a winemaker and a master winemaker at that. And in The California Wife, uh, she and Philippe embark on a journey to produce 
um, really one of the biggest American winemaking dynasties um, in in the nation. And, and so she's on this path. Um, but what I love about her is that she never loses sight of who she is or where she came from, and that she's always, above all things, loyal to her family first, which to me is really important. And I'm, I'm very much like that as well. Yes, and in fact, she would love to restore her family's vineyard as well as the um, the vineyard in California. Yes, and so one of the things that happened in, just to give you a little historical background, um, in real life and in the novel, um, in the 1870s, France was hit with the phylloxera bug, which is a louse that basically gets into the roots of the vine and sucks the vine dry of all its nutrients and therefore kills entire crops of grapevines. Um, and by the 1870s, 40% of France's um, vineyards were decimated by this bug. In Napa, by 1890, 60% of the vineyards uh, had been destroyed by this bug. So Sarah is not only, you know, Philippe has since replanted his vineyard in California, but Sarah is on a quest to replant her family's smaller vineyard um, in uh, the Loire Valley and get the grapes back and get that to be a thriving industry again. And so that's really her battle as well as um, helping Philippe with his vineyard in the United States. So tell us about Philippe as well. I mean, in many ways, he and Sarah are similar in personality, I think, but they're also very different, uh, especially since men and women played such different roles in the, um, the late 19th century. It's true. Philippe is on the edge of being a Renaissance man, but he's not quite there. Uh, I think he and Sarah share a very strong ambition in terms of uh, their drive and their focus and their love of winemaking. And they want to bring that to the world and their wines to the world. Uh, But Philippe is somewhat hampered by his background. He is trying so very hard to get out from under the dark shadow of his father and his brother who were not nice people and very violent people and kind of break away from that and be the man that he feels he should be and that his mother would expect him to be who was really she was the only kind influence in his life growing up as a child so Sarah and he connect um, in terms of their ambition, in terms of their love of the land. Um, And also they both come from very broken families. And if you read the first book, not to give too much away, uh, the histories of their families are very much intertwined and it gets very complicated. And so there's a lot of, um, I think... There's some guilt in there. There's also some resentment um, towards each other's families. And so to bring that into a marriage is something um, very, very challenging. So we get to see how that plays out in The California Wife. And how do you see him also as a businessman? It's, I mean, he's, he's basically running this enormous business that happens to be associated with wine. Yes, I think he's very shrewd. And one of the things that he did early on with his business in Napa, first of all, he came in and bought a vineyard that had been decimated by the phylloxera bug. So there, it had no grapevines virtually, no, um, you know, winemaking. Uh, capability. And so he bought uh, about 200 acres, replanted it. It took three to five years for those grapes to um, really, you know, grow and be ready to make wine with. And so he did that. And um, then once he was making wine, he decided to kind of preempt um, some of his other 
winemaker friends and go to the Catholic Church and really start selling his wine to the Catholic Church. And back then, the Diocese of Monterey was one of the largest um, of the Catholic Church in the United States, and they spread um, through half of California, really. So he already has one of the major contracts with them to provide sacramental wine. So he's a very savvy businessman. And the other thing that he has done with his business is he's working to really create a brand for his wines. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were only a very few um name brands of wines in California that people recognize in the United States. Inglenook is one of them. Um, the Behringer Brothers is another. But he's really trying to create a name for Eagles Run. So that's his vineyard. And he's so he's bottling instead of barreling his wines and labeling them and trying to ship them to nice restaurants and build that business as well. So it was really exciting to learn about that aspect of the business and um, see how Philippe as a character took advantage of all these new developments. Yeah, we'll come back to that in, in uh, a little bit. But that was one of the fun things of the book is to suddenly see this name that you could go down to the local, uh, well, not in Pennsylvania, you have to go to the state store in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> and there they are on the shelves. Yes, yes. So um, talk a little bit about the the wine. Well, you, you've mentioned some of this, um, some of the conditions that Philippe and Sarah have to surmount at home. And I didn't actually realize that the, I mean, I knew that the phylloxera bite, blight uh, had pretty much decimated the, the French wine industry, but I had not realized that it was as uh, devastating California as it still was. Yes. And so in the late 1800s, not only are you dealing with the phylloxera, which, which uh, had huge pre- repercussions on the industry, uh, but you also are dealing with a lot of natural disasters. There were several small earthquakes. And then in the California Wife, um, the Great Earthquake and Fire of San Francisco uh, not only destroyed a lot of the wine in the cellars of people in Napa, but also a lot of the wine that was stored on the docks in San Francisco was also destroyed in the fire. Uh, and And just to take another tangent, but it's kind of interesting from a historical standpoint, during the Great Fire of 1906 in San Francisco, right after the earthquake, a lot of the European immigrants who made their own wine had to use it to put out the fire um, in their homes. And as it spread down the street, the wine and a lot of the liquor was used to put out the fire because the water mains had broken and the firemen had nothing but salt water from the ocean nearby bay to help put it out. So that's a little fun fact for you. <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. I thought if you threw liquor on a fire, it would I blaze up, right? Too. I thought that too. And so, um, but no, and you know what they would do is they'd pour them on like um, towels and rags and they'd beat back the fire with them, with the moisture. So interesting. Yeah. Um, So Philippe is somewhat older than Sarah and it's probably not surprising given the mores of the day that he's had a romantic life before Sarah. Yes. Uh, So his past relationship with Lynette in particular plays an important role in this book. So who is she and what is the nature of her connection with Philippe? So Lynette Cross is basically Philippe's former mistress. And Philippe met Lynette way before he ever met Sarah and had a relationship with her for several years. He actually plucked her out of the Clinton Street House, which is a famous brothel that actually existed in Napa in the 1890s and kind of installed her in the local hotel as his own paramour. And 
he kind of saw it as a business transaction. Uh, he thought he could focus better on his business if he, you know, his more baser needs were met. Uh, but they had quite a friendship going. But then when he encountered Sarah, he dropped Lynette, explained to her that he had a new path with Sarah, and um, and then proceeded to court Sarah. And what happens in the California wife is really through no fault of her own, uh, Lynette is forced to um, try to revive her liaison with Philippe um, because a very serious matter has come up that she needs to bring to his attention. And so it becomes a little tricky because Philippe uh, is newly married. And so to have to explain that and go down that path with his former mistress, um, it it creates a lot of problems for Philippe. I will tell you that. So um, there are several children associated with Sarah and Philippe. I mean, they're newly married and they're obviously trying to have their own family, but there are their family members and sort of assorted children. Um, Can you tell us something about um, what today we might call their surrogate family? Um, Yes. You know, one of the things that I love about these novels is that they, they really are, we're creating a family saga here. And the reason I wanted to do a family saga and include the children, is because it's always been a pet peeve of mine when I watch a mini series or remember those old soap operas that were so terrible. When you see them on TV, you're introduced to the children as, as babies and they're so adorable and cute. And then they're off in boarding school and you never see them again. And to me, that's a whole level of emotion and responsibility that's left untapped in these storylines. And it was very important for me to have kind of an abundance of children um, from various sources uh, in the story because they really force the adults to focus on what's important, um, to mature faster, to really put their priorities straight. And they really test the adults. And I think that Sarah and Philippe in particular, but also Marie, who we'll talk about a little bit later, um, they really have to work hard to balance their personal ambition with um, the safety and the strength of their own family and their children. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the individual children? There's Luke, for example. Yes, Luke is um, Sarah's nephew, uh, who is really, for all intents and purposes, her son now. And he is also Philippe's nephew. Um, Read the first book and you'll figure that one out. (laughs) It's tricky. But um, Luke is actually going to have a major role in the third book, um, because that will be the legacy book about... um, him taking over the vineyard in France and eventually um, going through World War One and Prohibition. Um, and Luke is a very strong kid, and we can start to see part of his personality towards the end of the California life wife, excuse me, when I actually um, give about a chapter from his point of view, and he's kind of introduced as a very strong personality. He's the oldest son in the family, and he really watches out for his younger siblings. Um, and then one of my favorite characters, uh, children characters, is Pippa, who um, I won't can't really tell you about her origins, but she is uh, a young girl who has a cleft uh, lip, and so she is seen as an outcast. And I thought it was really important to talk about, bring that subject to light, in that back then, you know, if you had special needs or you had a deformity, you were seen as the devil's child. You were an outcast. You were not allowed in school with the other children. Um, You were shunned, basically. And even in the early 1900s, that was the case. So I really wanted to test 
Sarah and Philippe's resolve in terms of how they dealt with this child and how they really fought to give her everything that she needed. Yes, and it's it's in some ways it's a, a I hate to say this, but a, a good disability to have in an owl because the surgery to repair it was actually already in existence. I mean, they were discovering it, so it's not ultimately. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Let's put it this way to avoid getting too clear. It doesn't have to be a lifetime problem, but while it's there, people are still approaching it almost in the same way they would in the Middle Ages. Yes, yes. And and I think, you know, and I toyed with the idea of doing um, something that wasn't as obvious or fixable, if you will, um, perhaps mental illness. But I think I'm going to tackle that in the third book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so that sort of brings us to Marie, because another of the, the child characters uh, is Marie's daughter. Yes. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about her and then we'll talk about Marie herself? Well, Adeline is the product of a liaison between Marie and Bastien Lemieux, who is a gentleman who really treated our heroine, Sarah, very poorly and her sister as well, and also jilted Marie. And so Adeline is in this story, um, 10 years old, I believe, towards the end. And she's very, very uh, excited to become potentially a nurse. Her mother has been a midwife. Marie is a midwife who is studying to become a surgeon right now in the California wife at Cooper Medical College in San Francisco. And Adeline is grappling with the idea that she only has a mother. She has an uncle she loves very much, but her father has basically deserted her. And Marie, her mother, is very clear about that. And she feels that Although it's harsh, she has to tell her daughter exactly what happened and that she needs to know the truth, that her father didn't want them. And it's a really tough message for Adeline to um, hold on to and really deal with, grapple with at such a young age. Uh, But in the end, it's going to make her a stronger person because she also is going to be a major character in the third novel. So I'm excited to see where her character goes and develops. So... um in the 1890s, um, as you mentioned, Marie wants to become a doctor, but becoming a doctor is not an easy thing for a woman in the 1890s. No, and I actually placed her as the first female surgical candidate at Cooper Medical College, which is the predecessor to Stanford, uh, Stanford's medicine school, University of Medicine. Um, and she is faced with a lot of sexism. Uh, the other men who are in her class don't, for the most part, don't believe she should be there. Uh, and they're jealous of her. They think that she's using um, her connections uh, and basically her sexuality to get ahead, when, which she is not. Uh, but she does find a few good friends uh, among the students and faculty of Cooper Medical College. And that ends up being her saving grace because she has a great mind for it and she loves it. But she also feels like a bit of a freak because she she feels it's other women look at her as unfeminine because she's so excited about surgery and cutting people open and fixing them and seeing what's wrong with them. And she's just really has a very scientific mind. And, and I think she feels like an outsider because of that. And she has uh, been working as a midwife for some time. Was she doing that even in France? 
No, actually, uh, she was not doing that in France. She had to come to America uh, because she was going to give birth to Adeline. And she ended up living with a group of nuns in the Vintner's Daughter um, who and who helped her watch the baby while she went, you know, studied to be a midwife. And so she basically worked out of the back of the convent um, and they and she would go service, um, you know, as a midwife the pregnant women of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And she did that probably for about five to ten years. I can't remember exactly, but she did it for quite some time. And the reason she wanted to become a surgeon is because advancements were, were being made in uh, obstetrics and cesarean sections, and she really wanted to learn about those things so she could save more of her patients. And at some point she comes to the West Coast. Is it, um, I mean, at the beginning of this book, or... Yeah, at the beginning of this book, she is certainly on her way or has just arrived in the West Coast. Is that covered in The Vintner's Daughter, or can we talk about it a little bit here? Um, so she actually, in the beginning of The California Wife, Sarah and Philippe visit her in Manhattan on their way back from France while they're going towards California. And they try to convince her to come out to California. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. I almost forgot my It's been so long. <laughs> I wrote this, um, but um, so she she thinks about it, and and really their motivation is Sarah wants someone her own age who's a good friend to be near her, uh, but also Philippe wants his niece to have. Um, more of a, you know, an outdoors life. You can't really go outside and play in the streets of Manhattan, which is where they were living at the time. And he wants Marie and Adeline to really experience the beauty of Napa and the open, fresh air. And, and he knows that Cooper Medical College is, is taking applicants. And so he kind of nudges her to think in that direction. And Sarah eventually sends her the paperwork because she really wants them out there. And so it was nice to see Adeline and Marie finally arrive in San Francisco uh, because they now have support of their family and Marie can really go, um, you know, try to achieve her dream in San Francisco as a surgeon. Actually, this is a really interesting point that just occurred to me while you were talking you get a real sense in this book of how different childhood was then. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, these are, yeah. and, and we forget, even when I was young, you know, people were just much more relaxed about letting their kids go out and play. But these kids are basically, you know, they, they have the run of the vineyard. Um, some of them can go to school, but, you know, they don't all go to school because Pippa has this um, deformity and so it's not good for her. I mean, it's really interesting. Can you talk about that? That would be great. Yeah, you know where it was really fun uh, was to research where the kids went to school in Napa and how that was done. And and one of the things that was funny, and I put it in the book, is, you know, it's a one-room schoolhouse. Um, basically, you know, outside the playground was like cracked clay, and they would lose their marbles in, in the clay cracks on the playground because that's pretty much all they did was, you know, kick the can and play marbles and tag and run around and do things like that uh, during recess. And they were all in one room, very similar to like Little House on the Prairie, for example, where they're teaching all the different ages in one room. And then in order to get to school, a lot of these kids had to cross the creek. And this is the only time where adult supervision came in, in handy for the little ones because sometimes they'd have to go on a mule for a mile to get to school and they would have to help the kids cross the creek. So it was just kind of fun to to hear about that. And really, I mean, my kids go outside and I'm like putting on the sunscreen and the bug spray. These kids just run out and, you know, it's one of those things where they ring the bell at at, uh, six o'clock for dinner and then you come you come running from wherever you are in the vineyard. 
Right. No, exactly. I mean, I can remember even my, my younger brother going out in the, it would be exaggerating to call it a wood. It was like a tiny cops behind her house. Yeah. And, and they'd say, you know, my parents would say, watch out for the copperheads. And it's like, <laughs> right? I mean, and that's true. There were a lot of snakes in Napa mm-hmm. too. But yeah. Yeah, that's and big mosquitoes and but they didn't carry horrible diseases like they do today, so Right. So that nicely sets up my next question, which is what kinds of research? Because there's a lot going on in this novel. Um with there, the wine you know, business and the medicine and the you know, yeah. the kids and everything. What kind of and research would, do you do? I would imagine you feel the same way as someone who writes historical fiction. That's the fun part is really doing the research for me. And what I did was I took a lot of trips. I went to the Loire Valley, obviously, uh, but I took several trips to uh, Napa, Sonoma, uh, and I biked through the Napa vineyards. Um, I took tours of them. I did a lot of wine tasting, which was a chore, but someone had to do it. Yeah, it's really <laughs> rough. <laughs> what, what we do for our art. <laughs> oh, it was so painful. Um, and then, uh, and I talked to a lot of uh, master winemakers about their craft uh, and and how they blend wines, how they bottle wines. Um, I looked, I went to the Napa County Historical Society. I'm good friends with the research librarian there. And she provided me with such great information on uh just the immigrants who existed at that time who came to the area um, and photos of the downtown. So everything I describe in the novel is really from pictures that I've actually seen in the 1800s and early 1900s. And so that was a lot of fun. And I also, um, for the trade part of it and the business aspect of it, which was very interesting to me as an economics buff, um, I went to uh, what's called the Pacific Wine and Spirit Review, which is available at archive.org. And you can go online and read pages and pages of what was going on then in terms of scientific innovations, like going from, for example, the head train vines, which are like um, grape vines that look like bushes, and to the more elegant uh, trellis train vines that we see now when we go to Napa that are in like diagonal rows and how that came about. Um, And then even there's a uh, picnic that I describe in uh, the Italian Swiss colony of Asti, which is up in northern Sonoma that Philippe and Sarah attend. And that actually happened in May of 1898. They had a gigantic wine cistern that held like hundreds of thousands of gallons of wine that they cleaned out and they had like a party inside it. It was like a cellar. <laughs> they had like a party and you could see like the, the bishop's purple wine stains on the walls and they're, you know, dancing down in the big wine cistern. I mean, you can't make this up. <laughs> I, I have to say I'm so jealous. Every time I, I talk to anyone who does American history, I think, why am I not writing novels in the United States instead of this, this place where there are no records? You know, it's like, <laughs> But see, that's because you have a better imagination than I have. So that, that's why it works for you. Oh. <laughs> no, that's not why. I've, I mean, I've spent 40 years studying this place, so I actually do know a lot about it. It's just yeah. that, you know, in terms of diaries and letters and, you I know, know. I mean, it's just nothing. It's just There's nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a challenge, I would imagine, for you. Yeah. In some ways, too. But also, it's, it's quite freeing because, <laughs> I mean, people do write me notes saying, how do you know that? Tatars were drinking tea and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing, though. You have to know all these tiny little details, like, you know, what kind of stockings you wear. Or do you wear stockings back then? You know, like things, just silly things that you have to know to be accurate. 
So how do you go about doing I agree that research is the most fun, um, although making up the story is a lot of fun, too. Yes. Um, but how do you actually go about I mean, some people don't research except when they need the answer to what kind of stockings people wore because they're afraid <laughs> that it's going to take over the book. Um, you certainly did not let your research take over the book. Do you do you like devote a time when you go research and then you sit down and write or how do you handle it? You know, I always start with the research because often the research informs the plot for me. And, uh, you know, like I said, the party with the wine cistern, the great earthquake and fire of San Francisco in 1906, I knew that was going to be the ending of the book. So I needed to research that. But, you know, there comes points in time where you have a plot and you're writing and you're going along and then all of a sudden it's just not exciting anymore. And that's when I go look for more research and I'll say, okay, what was really going on? So I'll go back to the year that I'm in, in 1900 and see what was happening. And one of the things I stumbled across in my research for the California wife is that there was a whole price war going on with the wines in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And what was happening is that the supply of wine and the Eastern demand for it was increasing. And so there were these big companies like the California Wine Association that weren't paying the grape growers their asking price. And so what was happening is these Napa and Sonoma grape growers were kind of throwing a fit because they couldn't afford the cost of labor, which was sky high. So these are the things that were going on. And so the price wars drove the prices of wine down in California, where they were going up in France. And so it was really driving a lot of the smaller operations out of business. So this was another really um, sticky point for Philippe and Sarah in the, in the novel and something they had to try to overcome. So that was born from my research because things weren't exciting enough. And that's when I go looking. <laughs> yeah, no. And actually, I, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's interesting when you're when you're reading historical stuff as a historian, you're looking for answers, right? Or at least reasonable answers. <laughs> But what I find with historical fiction is that the research just opens it up. So with um, with my latest novel, The Swan Princess, mm. I was looking for information on this monastery that some maniac set up as far north in Finland as you can go without falling into the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> and I came across the saint's life of the guy who did it. And according to the saint's life, he had started out life as a bandit. Really? That's <laughs> and he had killed the woman he loved because she pleaded for some handsome young guy that he was about to execute. And so he decided she must be hot for him. And and then having killed her, he went into some kind of fit of remorse and roamed around the Russian north, you know, in rags for two decades until he finally found himself as far north as he could go where, you know, the sun didn't even rise for six months wow. out of the year. And then he became a saint, and he's, you know, the sainted Trifon. And, you know, it's the saint's life, so who knows if it's true, but wow. if you're a novelist, can you let something like that go? <laughs> you cannot let that go. That is awesome. I can't wait to meet Juan Princess. <laughs> but I hadn't, you know, until I, I had read that, I hadn't even thought about the fact. I mean, I knew that one of the things I love, I mean, I'm making fun of this period that I study, but one of the things I love is that there's no law enforcement so oh. to speak of. I mean, they have bailiffs and people who, you know, run you in and lock you up after you've obviously done something. But there's no police department. So people get away with all kinds of things. Vigilante justice. I love but it. But I hadn't even <laughs> thought about the fact that there are all these bandits all over the woods, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's my so story. Cool. <laughs> yeah, but, but see, that's what I'm saying. 
like your story could totally take a different turn because it's something that you discover. And that is the best part about being a historical novelist, I think. Oh, yeah. And it totally did. I mean, I hadn't even considered this possibility until I came across it. And I thought that's what my antagonist needs to do. That is cool. Um, so, <laughs> so you sort of hinted at this, but one of the things I was interested in and is how much the California and the French uh, wine industries have changed. I mean, some things don't change about making wine, and yet obviously it's much more industrial and so on than it was then. It is, and I think that um, what happened is, of course, you had in between my books in that time period and the current day, we, of course, had Prohibition, which um, actually was a, a big boon for the grape growers for a while because they were shipping a lot of grapes back east to um, immigrants who would make their own wine in the cities because you could have like 200 gallons a year of your own wine. And so so that was working well for the grape growers in California for a while. But then the market was flooded with too many grapes, and that's when it really hurt them financially out during prohibition and then so once we got through prohibition and we had world war uh two and then after that you know we really saw the rebirth of the california industry and the branding of wines and the acceptance of wines in california as on par or better than some of it their french counterparts um after that 1976 tasting um which was the blind tasting of paris and you and i both love the movie bottle shock <laughs> absolutely i love anything that has alan rickman in it i have to admit oh, okay. and chris pine too so <laughs> Chris Pine, I'll always. Um, and, but, you know, um, Alan Rickman, I was so sorry to see that he passed away. And I, I really... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He was... I, I actually binged. I kept watching that over and over last weekend because I was, I was doing a paper on something and I wanted to reacquaint myself with the movie. And it really is a wonderfully fictionalized version of what happened in 1976. But basically, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it... Um, uh, a gentleman named Spurrier got, he was a British, um, wine connoisseur who had a little shop in Paris and he felt it was his duty to educate people on wines. And so he came to California to see if California had any decent wines to offer in 1976. And he was shocked by what he found. And so you had these small, um, farmers who were making exquisite wines, almost perfect wines. Um, And he brought some of the California wines from Napa and Sonoma back to France and had a blind tasting with mostly, I think, French uh, wine connoisseurs who didn't know what they were drinking. And they took notes and rated the wines. And uh, California wines won in both the red and white categories. So it was very exciting. And that was the real turning point for not only California, but for the rest of the world. What happened after that is that, you know, Portugal and Spain and Brazil and, you know, all these other countries, uh, New Zealand, Australia, all these other countries who thought no one would ever accept their wines to be as good or, you know, on the level of a French wine, kind of gained some courage from that blind tasting. And then they started producing more and more wine. So I think if anything, it has really evolved into a world, um, you know, I guess a world winemaking endeavor. So more countries have come into the fold and joined uh, the ranks of the fine winemakers. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, I was, I mean, I learned a lot from your book about making wine, actually. I thought it was really interesting because it was very skillfully done. It wasn't, you know, um, an information dump, as I call it. But, but, 
<laughs> but there was a lot of information there. And one of the things that really surprised me was that even in the 1890s, um, there were California wines that were respected in Paris. Yes. And actually, one of the more exciting things I stumbled across in my research was um, Hannah Weinberger, who... Um, took over her husband's farm. His name is John Weinberger. He had a farm in Napa. um, And she had a winery that uh, could produce 90,000 gallons of wine. And she took over the operation when he passed away and actually sent some of her wines to the 1889 World's Fair and won a silver medal for them, which was very coveted at that time. And so there were not only California wines winning medals in France and at the World's Fairs, but they were also women winemakers um, who were winning those medals. So that makes it even more exciting. Well, that is impressive. And of course, in a certain sense, uh, because of the phylloxera, most of the French wines are now partly Californian, right? It's California rootstock. That oh, very good. You've done your homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, the Americans had to import the French uh, phylloxera-resistant rootstock, and the French had to import the American resistant rootstock in the 1870s. So we, we shared each other. It's strange. I'm not. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. Because it's, there was some kind of national difference then in the in the Yes. The yes. Huh. And, and what was really, I don't really know, to be honest. I'm not an expert in it. But all I remember is that was very fascinating. And one of the things that I found out about was there was this woman named the Duchess de Fitz James, and she was a French winemaker and she knew everything about wines and when the phylloxera bug struck her vineyard in the 1870s she was the first one to order american phylloxera resistant rootstock because none of the other frenchmen would do it because they're like american no we won't do that they turn their nose up at it well she ordered the rootstock and grafted you know she replanted with the american rootstock and her vineyard was thriving and when they saw that they finally realized that she was right and then they all ordered it <laughs> so See, it takes a woman every time. There you go. <laughs> so was there anything that you really wanted to know that you couldn't find out? I mean, at what point of the story do you just throw up your hands and say, okay, I'm going to make it up. I have to keep going. <laughs> well, not so much anything that I couldn't find out. But one of the things that um, I had the Napa County Historical Society review the novel um, the first one, The Vintner's Daughter, for accuracy. And one of the things the research librarian said to me, she said, Kristen, I love how you've incorporated the Chinese Americans in this novel because they were such an important part of the agriculture here in California. And they really did all the pruning and, you know, the picking of the vines. And it's just so great to see them included. She said, but I don't think that Sarah actually would have been running around with a band of Chinese or under the supervision of a Chinese foreman. And I said, said, okay, well, and I talked to my editor about it. My editor's like, we're going to take a little creative license here because I think it's a really good part of the plot. And I think it's, we both agreed that we thought it was really cool how Sarah as an outsider, you know, decided to, she was more comfortable with this other group of outsiders within Napa. So that was probably the one thing that we stretched a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do have to sometimes. You, you know, people, <laughs> people will say things and it's perfectly well-intentioned, but sometimes... Yeah. And she was right. And I told mm-hmm. her before the book came out, I'm like, I just want you to know that we did take it under consideration, but we decided to take some creative license. She was fine with it. But she's like, I just wanted you, know, you to know for accuracy's sake. My attitude is that's what the, the historical note is for. It's yeah. for the, the things that you messed exactly. up. <laughs> exactly. And the things you deliberately changed. <laughs> totally. 
So, um, so one more question about you as a writer uh, before we move into the closing. Uh, I wondered, you know, some people outline aggressively. Some people sit down and just write it as it comes. Some people sort of, you know, go back and forth. What kind of writer are you? I'm the go back and forth kind of writer because I just can't sit there and do a whole outline, um, at least for historical fiction. That That's tricky for me because I know that I'm going to come across some great things in my research that are, I'm going to want to put in the plot. So I really kind of think about it from the perspective first about where the characters are going, what kind of journey, what kind of growth I want to see in them, and what kind of hardship is going to come down on them during the novel. That's kind of where I start. And then I... I fill in so that's the bones of it and then I fill in the flesh around as I do my research it's kind of and I keep going back and I mean I just keep re you know you just rewrite and revise and revise and revise yeah I mean I have to do it very much the same way in part because I discover my characters by setting them off you know yes having them talk and do things I mean even characters I've worked with in a series they're when you come back to them they're older or they've changed because of the experiences yes. they had you, you can't just um, assume that they're going to be the same. Otherwise, you're publishing the same book over and over. But so I always, yes. you know, uh, so I, I started out making outlines and then I get five pages in and the outline was out the door. So. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Do you ever find that your characters surprise you? Like, oh, all the time. Absolutely. Like, yes. It's not just me. It's like, what? what was <laughs> you serious? <laughs> I know. That happened. One of my characters told me going to die a violent death and I'm like that can't be and I started like getting upset in the car and my teenage daughter's like why are you upset What's I'm like I'm sorry <laughs> I'm about my characters <laughs> she thinks I'm crazy well I think all writers are a little bit crazy actually I mean, <laughs> but yes and and I honestly think I mean I've only had Touchwood writer's block a couple of times in my life and every time it was because I was trying to make a character do something that they simply would not do that is so interesting. I can totally see that. That's happened to me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you like readers to take away from The California Wife? Well, you know, we've talked about a lot of complicated things today and, and complex, you know, plots and whatever. But I do want them to take away the fact that most people tell me it's a very easy read. <laughs> so I can confirm that. It is a yeah, very okay. easy it's a, it's, It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, good. It flows well. It's still a nice beach read, summer read. Um, and I really want people to take away an appreciation for uh, the farmers of that time and the rich history of California winemaking country. And really the fact that winemaking is so much, it's a business, but it's really art and science blended together. And these vintners put in so much effort and time to craft such perfect wines. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. It's a lot like novel writing in that way. I think, but um, I really want people to take away a rich and full experience about what it's like to be a California winemaker. That's great. So I was going to ask what you're working on now, but you've kind of told me you're working on the third book in the series, right? I am, but you know what else I'm working on? I kind of took a little break and I also am kind of, I'm working on a women's contemporary novel about four friends trying to survive midlife in all its catastrophes and things that happen to them. And, um, I'm finding it a lot of fun and very freeing because I don't have to do as much research. And I actually did outline that whole one. I was very proud of myself. Uh, and it's the only one I've ever outlined from beginning to end. <laughs> so are you working on them simultaneously then? 
Kind of. I'm working on the research for the third one, but I'm not writing it yet because it's a big one. It okay. may take a few years because it's going to take the family through World War One and Prohibition. So I really want to get it right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm researching that. And then I'm just writing the, the contemporary one, which I think I can probably finish up in the next six months, I'm hoping. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. And will the third one also be a standalone? Yes, absolutely. And it will be about the second generation. Um, Most of the kids, I mean, all the main characters, Sarah, Philippe, Marie, Matthew, they'll all be in it. But uh, it will really be about the story of the lives of the children. So it should be fun. I look forward to seeing it. And I wish you all success with both projects. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. This was delightful. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Kristen Harnish about The California Wife. You can find out more about her at www.kristenharnish.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I've added blog posts about books sent to me that for one reason or another don't fit into my interview schedule, so the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.